My name is uh, Daniel Evan Atkinson. I'm from Southern California. Hello and welcome to Obehi Podcast. I'm your host, Obehi Ewanfo. And I strongly believe that everyone has a story to share. Now let's get started with this episode. My mother's family, they come from North Louisiana. And that's where most of my value systems come from, from those people. And uh, my grandparents were the children of sharecroppers, you know, two generations from bondage. And if not for the prosperity that was brought to my family through World War II, where my grandfather became a Tuskegee Airman, I'm not sure my family would have been able to escape that cycle of poverty. But as a result of my grandfather's uh, achievements, uh, we have sort of been given a mandate for education and achievement that has resulted in uh, two PhDs, no, three PhDs, my older brother, my mother, and myself, and several master's degrees. Uh, my, bro- my youngest brother served uh, in the 82nd Airborne, and uh, we are a rather unique family, largely because of the fact that I know far more about my ancestry than most Afro-Americans do. And I was lucky enough to have stable, sensitive, intelligent, capable men around. Most notably my father, my maternal grandfather, and several uncles. Ah, that's good to hear. Thank you very much for that. Uh, you have a lot of people uh, that are sort of surrounding you now in the beginning. I want you to speak about, um, give us some background about your, um, uh, your teenage year, your growing up uh, with your father, and tell me something about yourself as you were growing up. Okay, I was fortunate in that, uh, my, again, my grandfather did uh, 30 plus years in the United States Air Corps, starting off, uh, sorry, 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 starting off in the Army Air Corps when it was segregated and then transferring into the Air Force. Uh, World War II, Korea, and Vietnam uh, served, flew in combat in all three theaters. So I grew up at the foot of the military base where he retired from. And as a matter of course, I was exposed to several, several different cultures. Being Southern California and so close to Mexico, I grew up with a lot of Mexican people, Chicano people. And being next to the military base, a lot of the other people I grew up with, there were mothers from Korea, Japan, Germany, uh, all over the world. And uh, because of that, it gave me a worldview that was a little bit different. It was also kind of out in the country, so we had lots of time to, to do stuff as kids, where uh, a lot of my friends who I met later who grew up in cities didn't, didn't have some of the advantages that I had growing up in the country, learning how to grow my own vegetables and uh, things of that nature, how to read the weather. And it was a really beautiful environment for a kid who was just curious and just liked to learn because there were plenty of opportunities to learn. And it is very rare, particularly being Afro-American, being raised out in the West, because with very few exceptions, being Los Angeles and uh, Oakland and a couple of other places, there really isn't a critical mass of black people. So if you did not go to a black church, you tended to not get much of the 
black Afro-American traditional aspects of culture. So luckily I did have that going to church as a kid and also spending summers in Louisiana with my mother's family where, you know, up until the eighties, they were still farming. And, uh, and luckily that they had been stable for so long that I can still to this day go to the graves, the grave sites of my great grandparents, which is very rare for Afro-Americans. And my, in that environment where we weren't quite getting the same kind of upbringing that my parents and grandparents had, my parents really took it upon themselves to make sure that we understood the value and the heritage of Afro-Americans in the United States. So with several other families, we would get together on Sundays and talk about black history and the value of our cultural ancestors. So when it came time for me to, as an adult, uh, I was trained as a musician uh, in the traditional sense, learning from older people. When I moved to Los Angeles at the age of 18, I found that uh, my upbringing was quite unique in that I had stable men around and that really paid, paid a dividend when it came to speaking to elder musicians, uh, both African, Afro-Americans and uh, people who were from the Afro-Caribbean cultures as well. And because I was able to endear myself to them, I was able to learn in learn traditional musical and cultural techniques of expression that I did not see very much of because jazz being the music that I really wanted to play was had been steadily institutionalized and was being turned into something that was much more akin to Western classical music in accordance with methods of the people of European descent who ran things. And more and more, I was being told that my sound was too traditional and lacked universal appeal. It lacked universal appeal, meaning meaning that the white people who controlled it could not easily access it culturally, mentally, or they couldn't do it. So therefore, it had no value to them because they were running things, which created a uh, a critical mass of rage that was within me that that gave me cause to match my vocabulary with it because I knew what was happening was wrong, and I knew that it had a of a deeply institutionalized historical base to it that I wanted to find out more about. So then knowing that I, that the window was closing for traditional expression as far as jazz and black music was concerned, and that most of the people my age were uh, going into hip hop, meaning that they were dependent heavily on technology and not really thinking musically, though they were still involved in the oral tradition, I decided to to go to college to further my understanding of black music and black culture and match my vocabulary with that growing rage. So since then I've earned a PhD in ethnomusicology in which I specialize in Afro-American cultural expression, especially with regard to the commodification of black cultural products, how black cultural products are brought to market, marketed and sold most often to people who have no cultural reference whatsoever. So from the very beginning, we have been preoccupied with white acceptance of our cultural aspects. So in that regard, we remove a lot of the humanity, a lot of the beauty, a lot of the, the magnanimousness that has come out of the environment in which we have been stuck in, in order to be acceptable to people who don't care and don't want to know the cultural context behind it. They just want something to conspicuously consume. And so that has been the focus of my work and why I am not well liked within the institutional world because 
I really want America, the United States, to match what it does in action, what it says on paper. Because I come from the only group of people in the United States who cannot point to a specific point of origin or a language. Everything that we have are vestiges from Africa that we have found a way to utilize here. And once we do, that's fine and well until a dollar value gets assigned to it. And then it is slowly eroded down to nothing, which is why most black cultural products don't stand the test of time. They are useful in the moment, but they don't stand the test of time because most of the integrity, the integral parts of what makes it so beautiful are removed for the sake of conspicuous consumption of people who really don't matter, except for the fact that they have money to spend. And it's a lot better for black people to be making records or catching touchdown passes or dunking a basketball than digging a ditch or working on somebody's farm. And it's been the same sort of scenario for us since the very beginning. And the current work that I'm doing on the life of George W. Walker who was one of the founding fathers of the Harlem Renaissance and one of the first black superstars and recording stars, the same things that I see that plagued his life 120 years ago still plague black artists to this very day. And because of his politics, the way that he thought of black cultural sovereignty, wanting to own it, to maintain it, and to curate it, regardless of what someone else thought, uh, that did not endear him to the powers that be, and he was summarily erased from the historical record. And so I've spent the last seven years or so piecing his life story together through an infinity of trace data. And once I bring that to bear, I think it will prove very helpful for young people who have been denied access to their own cultural birthrights, their own history, their own, the beauty that makes them who they are. I think that once they see how the first generation after emancipation handled themselves, they can see a true example for, uh, for better or for worse, because they did make mistakes along the way, but then they can see how someone else did it. There's a record, there's a precedent being set so that they can use that, bring it back to ritual and move forward instead of being preoccupied with what someone who doesn't matter wants. They should do what they want, what they know that their ancestors would have wanted and what their descendants will want once they become an ancestor. Uh, thank you so much for that. Now, I would like you to speak a bit about the, uh, the story of African-American, your experience, uh, even with your, uh, with your father and your grandfather. Why not help us understand the, the background of the story of African-American, who, of course, uh, form your, your identity now. Uh, yeah, we're talking of... Uh, where we are coming from, our ancestors. And of course, we sort of come to repeat the same thing again and then pass on the baton to other people that are going to be after us. Both of my grandmothers are very light-skinned. They look white until they open their mouths, right? Uh, and so it's seeing their struggles and to see how they didn't fit in anywhere because they weren't black, they weren't white, and they were pretty, which was kind of a detriment in some respects. Seeing that and knowing that their stories were never going to be valued or told, other than the little bit that they would let out for us to hear as children, was disturbing for me. And more importantly, 
for for me as a man, seeing how the the scenario that my grandfather found himself in when he was drafted in the early 1940s, having never used a toilet brush, I mean a, to- a toothbrush, uh, having never used an indoor toilet, uh, having never used uh, a radio, like he didn't know what these things were. And he was, at the time they made the black troops pick up the cigarette butts of the white troops and he refused. So they sent him over to the mess hall to wash dishes. And on the way to the mess hall, he saw that they were short on pilots and he needed more black pilots. So he said, thought to himself, it's got to be better than this. So he just signed up for it. And in that process, he discovered that basically he was a mathematical genius. And because of his his abilities that were useful to the United States government, my family was allowed to prosper to a certain extent. But the man was so brilliant in that when he was well into his 80s, I could drive him to Las Vegas, which was like three hours from my hometown. And without using paper or pencil, he could watch the Kino machine, which is like a lottery that takes place inside the, the, the casino where you pick numbers and the numbers are drawn randomly by computer. He could see what, after watching the computer pick numbers at random for a few hours, he could determine the algorithm that the computer was using. And without using paper or pencil, he could beat the computer every time. And so this was a man who was probably the most intelligent person I've ever known. And if not for the American social order, was could have been a Mercury Gemini or Apollo astronaut. I mean, he was that brilliant. And to see that amount of wasted potential among him, a lot of his peers, I've seen it among my parents' generation and among my generation. I'm one of very few who I grew up with who did not go to prison. And to see all of that wasted potential you know, that comes from a very small percentage of the population, and we are responsible for pop culture. We're responsible for so many beautiful things in this world and in this country, but then we still crowd the prisons. You know, when I did my dissertation research at Angola State Penitentiary, a gigantic prison plantation where they make black men pick cotton for two cents an hour and call it rehabilitation, we at the time, there were two and a half or 2.1 million people incarcerated, and half of them were black males and were 7% of the population. So even with all of that detriment, as uh, Public Enemy used to say, it takes a nation of millions to hold us back. I figured that with the time that I have and with the blessings that I have had, being around stable people and knowing the better way, and having taken the time to learn the beauty of our history, it has been my mission to share that with as many people as possible so that we can begin to recognize our full potential. And it does not endear me to a lot of people, but at the same time, I know that I'm going to be dead a whole lot longer than I'm gonna be alive. And so it's, it's my mission to, to do what I do with the greatest amount of integrity possible so that I know that I can, that I know that when I clock out, I had a good one, as opposed to a lot of people who were just going to do what's expected of them or what's convenient. Uh, 
as a as a jazz musician in the traditional sense, you do not take the convenient route. You run to the places that are difficult. You you have to there is no success without risking failure. So you have to paint yourself into a corner and paint yourself out. It's all about how you use your mind. In the same way that say in like in Nigeria, Alegba. The way that works, mind over matter the little guy can outthink the big guy. You can always use your wits. You can always use your ability to improvise and find the best, the best way out of a situation to prove your soul, to prove your mettle, to prove your worth. Not necessarily how much whatever it is that you're producing can be sold for. It's like, no, what is the value? What is the intrinsic value of it? Like, is this something that your children will value? Is this something your grandchildren will value? Is this something that a child you are not related to will value because they see the beauty in it? And for me, that's that's the most important the most important part of it. It's about the outcome, not the end. Before you were saying something to the effect of sounding traditional or things like that, so I want you to expand on that. How really were you supposed to sound? Talk to me about jazz music or the kind of music that you were doing because now. You have a background in music. Jazz music in general, well, actually, black black music in the traditional sense is based off of some 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 very potent and strong vestiges from West Africa that the Europeans could not destroy when they took our names, our language, things of that nature. Uh, you know, little things like syncopated rhythm, emotive delivery, uh, improv improvisation polyrhythm, things that you hear in West African drum circles, things of that nature. They couldn't push that out of us all the way. And we found ways to manifest it in our cultural expressions well into the 1980s and 1990s. Uh, and, and jazz is based off of these very basic principles, one of which is the blues. And so you can hear that, you know, Billie Holiday, Coleman Hawkins, Charlie Parker, uh, all the way through Freddie, Freddie King and BB King and uh, and even new school groups like Fishbone and such. This kind of thing that comes directly from the Afro-American experience within the context of white supremacy. And it's a kind of expression that requires the ability to know your role, your ability to work within the context of an ensemble as your Will, as your role is defined, and finding a way to be a cultural conduit, right? To express what it is that your role is, but also doing it in a way that differentiates you from other people who may have done that role in the past. So that's what makes you special, and it makes you a conduit because you take the language of the masters you got it from, and you give it to future masters, and that's how you live in this continuum. In order to do that, you have to acknowledge that there's something bigger than you. You have to you have to make yourself vulnerable. And you have to have a certain amount of charisma. These are things that are culturally antithetical in Western European circles. Uh, as George Michael said in the 80s, guilty feet have got no rhythm. Right. You have to really give up the things that your ego, all those things have to go out of the way. You've got to give those things up and you have to make yourself vulnerable to be this kind of cultural conduit, which most people are 
not really able to do unless they're raised in it. Some can, and I have worked with them. Some white people can. They are very rare. And I'm thankful for them because we're all human beings with the same capabilities, the same physical characteristics. The rest is culture, and that's human-made. But if your humanity is not fully intact and you're not willing to recognize these, these, the differences in our culture without making them deficient, then you won't come, th you, it's not going to come through. And so when these people were telling me that my sound and that my way of expression was too traditional, it was because I played blues, like a guy who had been doing it since the 1920s, because that's who I learned from. You know, I have a huge collection of black musical recordings that go back into the 19th century all the way through the 60s and 70s that are largely unknown to most people with the exception of unless there's a, a white version of it or unless that music was preoccupied with being acceptable to white people. Those are the things that make it through. But the other stuff doesn't, and that's the stuff that's the most beautiful. And we learn this very early, and the very first black ensembles to tour the country came out of HBCUs, historically black universities that were developed after the Civil War. So they had what they called Jubilee Quartets, where they sang plantation melodies, hymns from uh, Christian hymns from the gospel texts, as well as minstrel songs that were very popular because that was the very first form of popular culture where white people would black up with burnt cork and pretend to be black because they could release themselves in this way that was very fun, but they didn't want all the other stuff that made us beautiful. They just wanted, they wanted to, they wanted to be us so long as they could wash it off, right? And that was the way they did it. And so that was the very first form of popular culture in the United States. So most people would see that and had no other frame of context. And so they thought that that's how black people really were. And so the very first black people to make a living professionally as musicians had to adhere to that, which is why most of that Jubilee tradition is completely forgotten because it has no integrity. The same with early ragtime, the very first black theatrical music that was being sold as sheet music and into the recording era, most of that has very little integrity because it is preoccupied with white consumption, as was Motown. Barry Gordy was very, very afraid that he would offend white people and they would not buy his records, which is why Michael Jackson left. Marvin Gaye had to record what's going on completely in secret. And Stevie Wonder also had to threaten to leave so that he could make the music that he wanted to make. And that's how we got Talking Book, Songs in the Key of Our Life, Songs in the Key of Life, Music of My Mind, and all the beautiful recordings we know now. After he left all that bubblegum stuff that, that uh, Barry Gordy was making them record because he was afraid of what white people would do. And we need to, we have to leave that behind. Our integrity has to matter because as these people who refuse to be accountable, who refuse to recognize that their guy lost the election and break into the Capitol and defecate in the halls of the Capitol, why are we respecting these people? We need to respect ourselves. We have spent so much time giving these people what they want. We have lost our own connection to our own history and our own humanity. And that is terrible. And I refuse. I absolutely refuse. And I belong to a very small cadre of black people 
who act accordingly and are suffering as a result. I know so many potent, brilliant, beautiful, amazing black people who are suffering because they do not adhere to this inequity. You know, where I insist on black cultural sovereignty and I have come across a lot of white people who will tell me that that means that I am racist. I'm like, no, it's not racism. This is the thing. I'm not thinking like you. I'm not fighting fire with fire. I'm looking at history from a cause and effect perspective. And our music is derived from our experience. We were taken from several countries. Our languages were stolen, families destroyed, brought here, forced to work for nothing for hundreds of years, then emancipated. Things got better for a little while, but then they couldn't have that. So then they brought in, you know, uh, Jim Crow separate but equal, where they had to crush us down again. And in separating us, the separate but equal, that instance where we were culturally separated from white people, that was when we created the most beautiful cultural manifestations. This is when we get, you know, Claude McKay, Langston Hughes. This is when black people were leaving the country in droves for Liberia up until the 30s and 40s. This is where we develop jazz, rhythm and blues, gospel, rock and roll. And once uh, integration happened, which was really assimilation, right? Say when they integrated Major League Baseball, they didn't take in the separate black teams wholesale and bring them into Major League Baseball. No, no, no. They chose one one who could handle the abuse that was going to come from white people who were never going to be held accountable for the horrible things that they were going to do, that would be Jackie Robinson. They brought him into the Brooklyn Dodgers knowing that he was going to accept what was happening to him and just smile, be magnanimous, and just play baseball. So when they did that, they started bringing in black players slowly but surely, also Latino players. And in doing so, they destroyed these black institutions that were forced under the Jim Crow era. So they destroyed these black institutions to enrich white institutions and never had any check. In fact, to this day, they're still struggling to add the amazing black players who had to exist under that system into the Hall of Fame. And so that aspect of you can take what you want and leave the rest like it's a salad bar, that doesn't fly. That's not solving the problem and that's not integral. What we need is real justice. And so how these people feel about how we present it or they say that I'm angry or that I'm crazy or they say all these other things to deny the validity of my information, but it doesn't make what I said any less true or any less potent, specifically because I do not couch it in a way that is designed for their comfort because they are enslaved by their sense of comfort. And in order for them to be comfortable, in order for them to feel tall, I have to be on my knees, for which I refuse and have to be punished. A uh, case in point, there had been no ethnographic research that I know of that was done by black people at Angola State Penitentiary in Louisiana where I did my research for my doctorate. It's 18,000 acres, it's about the size of Manhattan, 36 square miles, and black men have been working the land there since 1820. 
Uh, it's a horrible place, and it is a plantation based off of the language of the 13th Amendment, which says that slavery is illegal except as punishment for a crime because they had to have something to do with the four million people who were now considered citizens upon emancipation, two million of them being male. So this is how we end up in the, 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 the prison industrial complex which we have. In order for me to get in there to do the work that I did to talk to elders of my father and grandfather's age, I had to allow these people to believe that I was white because I originally wanted to go in there and record hip hop because at the time I was 33 and half the inmates were 33 or younger. And I know that most from my generation don't play instruments or think musically anymore. It's very rare, uh, especially since we became more secular after the 60s because most black people who really learned to play music well learned in church. And without that influence, it just disappears. And then when they take the music programs out of the schools in the cities, the kids just have their parents' record collections and the oral tradition, which is how we get hip hop. Uh, I wanted to record hip hop in the prison to see what the young people were doing. But then they told me, oh, we don't have that here, but we do have some amazing gospel music, which let me know that they thought that I was white because nothing makes Southern whites happier than black people singing about Jesus because it means we're under control. And my last name is Atkinson, which is a British name. And on the phone, they couldn't tell because I know how to code switch. I was raised in California, but my sensibility is Louisiana. And so they didn't know that I was black. And once I got there, I got what I call the stare. And most black people who know how to code switch and set interviews up and things of that nature on the phone, and then they go for the face-to-face -face and they get that where you can tell that this person is completely out of sorts because you are not what they expected. And now they're in their head and thinking emotionally. And so usually what happens is you have to make a self-deprecating joke because you know, and they know that you know, and they're afraid because now they don't have anything in their mindset to deal with the situation. They don't have the ability to adapt to the situation and move on. And it's clear that they don't see me as a human being. Otherwise, it wouldn't be an issue. They would just say, oh, that's who you are. Let's talk. But the fact that they get so shocked, it lets me know what's happening here, right? It's, it's just a, it's a tale. And it, they, it's written all over their face because they're that raggedy. And in order for black people to succeed, you have to use what W.E. Du Bois coined as uh, the double consciousness. You have to know how they think before they think it so you can outmaneuver them, which means you have to work twice as hard to get half as far, but you don't want to incur their wrath or any of their whackness because they're not accountable. Even if you can prove that they're wrong and they will admit to you face to face, if it comes down to it in a grand scheme of things in a public sense, they'll never, ever give up that power. And so they saw me, they came out and looked, went back, came out and looked again, and on the third time, Daniel Atkinson? And I go, that's me. And I got that look. And I'm like, oh. So then I end up in, in, uh, in, the, the, in the prison working with the guys, talking to them about their philosophy, recording music, and all these sorts of things. And uh, first of all, they were very skeptical of me because they're not used to dealing with black people coming in there to do this kind of work. And so they'd be poking at me. What are you doing? Why are you doing this? And so I tell them. And then after they were satisfied, 
they would give me encoded messages through patois, through Bible verses, you know, just vernacular or just body language, what was really happening. And which made me quite nervous because they were putting an extra burden on me because they're like, okay, do you really want to know? Here it is, which was uh, really difficult to deal with. That plantation was at the end of a 22 mile dead end road. And every day I'd have to get the courage to go in there by myself, knowing that how many tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of black men have gone up that road and have never come out again. And no one knows who they are. Uh, so I would be talking to inmates or working with my equipment or something. I'd look back and the classification officer who was assigned to me would be reading my field notes as though I had no right to privacy. And I had to accept that because they were looking for a reason to get rid of me. So I said, fine, I'll deal with this because they were upset with me for not being black in an acceptable way. Right. Like, how dare I trick them? I didn't trick them. I just didn't disclose. So I said, OK, if that's how it's going to be. Then I wrote my field notes in Japanese because I, at the time I was pretty good with Japanese. My first wife was from Japan and her family spoke no English. So I learned the language. And so it proved to be really useful for me to take down this very sensitive data that I knew that if they read and saw, they would punish these men. For. And I wanted to protect the integrity of the data and protect those men who were taking a great risk to tell me these things about the better than before, but still pretty horrific conditions in that prison. And uh, I could see the anger on the classification officer's face when, uh, after I decided to do that on the second day, she went and looked where I would take some notes in English, but anything that was of any real importance was written in Japanese. And I could see the anger on her face because I was not allowing her Right, right, right. And so she was really angry with me. And so the second trip, it was uh, 10 months of begging. And they kept losing my application. They couldn't see the value in my work. But it took a letter from the head of the Smithsonian, where my work now is housed, to get back in. And I know white ethnographers, white graduate students who had unfettered access, who were able to make video, who had all kinds of uh, advantages that I didn't have. But they had no cultural insight. And one of them, right, and one of them, one of them wanted to use my insight. And I was glad to share it because, you know, the more the merrier. I can't put a dollar value on this. If you're going to write the story with integrity and you're going to get it into the hands and hearts and minds of other people, who am I to say to hold on to this like I own it? No, you can have it so long as you give me respect. You tell people where you got it from and you share your access with me because I have an issue with access. I'll trade you my insight for your access. They wouldn't do it. It was always a something for nothing kind of thing, which I'm used to. And so I just kept going, kept it locked and kept going. I like that. I like, I like what you said there, keep going. Uh, it is important to have a, a clear objective of what we really want in this, um, in this exchange with people, especially those who who want to make you believe that you are not worth anything and they have to do everything within their power to demonstrate this to you. And so when we are talking of this subtle racism, of course, it's not really subtle. In many cases, it's so open that uh, except maybe you are blind, that is when you are not able to see it. So it is really difficult sometimes to uh, understand what the people even want 
uh, in the relationship they have with other people that are different from them. It is challenging. It is challenging sometimes. Uh, but only that the pain is bared by those uh, who are the victim of the situation. If you're going to be a black person and have integrity, that means that um, particularly if you're going to get an advanced degree and you're going to move on, you, you're going to be surrounded by horrible people who will do horrible things but will insist that you tell them that the knife they're sticking into your back isn't really there. You know? And, uh, I mean, these are good people who voted for Obama, right? And, uh, but I see them largely as the same. And I, I wrote a paper about this once where I really upset a bunch of uh, liberal white people in the room where I said, uh, I used a graph that's out there where it talks about white supremacy being a horseshoe rather than a linear uh, line where there's two opposing views. It's like, no, you're a horseshoe where you, the, the starting point is so far away from where you are, but then you are basically almost meeting at a fulcrum, but you're still apart. So you consider yourselves separate, but you go back far enough and you're, you're together. That's where it begins. And so I wrote a piece that talked about that experience in the prison uh, where I said that I, if I have to deal with white supremacy, I prefer that it come from conservatives or Southerners because at the very least, they are honest enough to telegraph their intention, much like how a rattlesnake will rattle. You know, a rattlesnake rattles because it's a warning. You're too big for me to eat, but if you come any closer, you're going to catch some as opposed to liberal whites who were gingerbread houses in the Hansel and Gretel sense where, come on over to my house, you know, isn't this house delicious? Come on in, come on in, and right into my oven. And out of that oven comes me, and that's a piping hot mulligan because they can do all kinds of horrible things inside their gingerbread houses, and because I get neutralized in the oven and baked, they don't, there's no accountability. There's no learning from the situation. There's no growing from the situation. I am neutralized and they can go right back to doing the same thing over and over again. And so if it comes down to it, I'd rather deal with Southern white people who are honest about their racism to where if they don't want anything to do with me, I don't have to see them. So when I go home to Louisiana, I'll go weeks without seeing white people because they don't want anything to do with me. Whereas in the West, I'm surrounded by white people who want something from me, but don't want me. Thank you so much for that. I appreciate it. I appreciate your time, uh, your response, and also uh, the, the value that you're additional to the people here. Uh, now, one thing I want to ask you is that before you did make mention of uh, ethnomusicology, I don't know if you can spend some time explaining that to people who do not understand what, he, what the term even means. Help us with that. Ethnomusicology is... Uh... It's, a, it's an offshoot of anthropology, but it, in specific, it's, stud, it's, a, it's the study of cultural manifestations of music, how music and culture interact. And for me, it's a very good way to study value systems, because with very few exceptions, we all have music. And uh, it's a beautiful thing to see how the human condition is expressed from culture to culture, you know, sadness, happiness, anger, joy, uh, sorrow, uh, 
or just how you would announce your name or how you would profess your love or any or how you express your humor, how you admit that something funny happened to you or something scandalous happened to you or any any of those things. You can really get at a culture's value system by how they express themselves musically, whether or not they got charisma or not, or a sense of humor, those sorts of things. And so it's a very good tell on how a culture, how a culture expresses itself and its humanity, so to speak, particularly with how the music is transferred from master to child. That part is really, is really important. And uh, so for me, knowing the, the traditional methods with which I learned from, which comes out of West Africa initially, uh, basically sitting at the foot of an elder master and taking in all of their life lessons, whether they express them verbally or not, or whether or not they're taken as an example of what not to do versus what to do, uh, you have to take on a little bit. You got to take in a little bit to, to do that. You can't just read it off a page, right? It's a lived experience where you take these elder, you, you have to find a way to make yourself acceptable to, to learn from this master who may give you their information gladly or reluctantly, but you have to sort of meet them where they're at to get it. And so I was really good at that as a child because I spent so much time with older people. And when I moved to L.A., I spent a lot of time with older musicians who were slowly disappearing from the scene. And knowing the value of that and that it was disappearing because I saw fewer and fewer people my age and younger who understood that process, I figured that it was incumbent upon me to do something to preserve what was left so that people in the future... If they want to pick up the mantle, we could go back to ritual again. And so for me, it's very important. It's a very personal thing, as opposed to a lot of ethnomusicologists who are just curious about something and observe and record as an object. You know, because it did begin as a vestige of colonialism, because for the same reasons that I want to understand the African diaspora and the way that we as members of the diaspora express ourselves and how it goes all the way back to pre-colonial Africa. Uh, those same characteristics were used as a means to understand communities so they could be subjugated. Napoleon did that with a guy named uh, Viotto. When they went to Egypt and they found the Rosetta Stone, he brought a man there to study the music so they could understand how these people worked culturally so they could control them better. And uh, a Jez uh, another a French priest named Amio did the same thing in China. He went to China to study their music, but really he was sizing them up culturally and militarily for a takeover. And so that's the basis of the discipline. And there are still a lot of people out there who behave in such a way because, you know, this behavior's never been checked, where they literally will mark a territory like a dog will in the woods. And that's their part of the world. And once they have established themselves as the master of whatever this expression is, if you don't get on board with how they do things, even if you can prove that their methods are at fault or wrong, you will be neutralized which is why I have a problem finding an institutional home because I don't adhere to what some of the, 
the standard tropes of black expression are because I don't care whether or not white people enjoy what I'm saying or not. I want to make sure that it's correct. And sort of like Bayard Rustin, who was sent to uh, the man who organized the March on Washington, who was sent to a, a prison camp for 28 days, 10 years before Rosa Parks, for the, same, for the same infraction of not giving up his seat on a bus, somebody asked him, why don't you just get up and move to the back of the bus? Like, what's the point? And it was a woman, a white woman who asked him that. And uh, he said, ma'am, and pointed to a white child. If I give up my seat, that child will not know an injustice is being done. So he said, I'm not doing this for you. I'm doing this for this child. You're a lost cause, ma'am. This child is not. And so for the people who did that for me, I take every opportunity to do that going forward for every child. I love them as though they were mine because I don't want them coming to take what, what's mine because they don't have. I want them to be able to go get it for themselves, right? I, uh, along with my musical scholarship, I grow my own vegetables, some of which have been in my family since the antebellum period, since enslavement. You know, I raise my own bees. Uh, I eat, with the exception of honey, I eat nothing from an animal, strictly plant-based, but I still know how to hunt, I still know how to fish, I still know how to do all the things that my ancestors used to survive. But uh, when it comes down to it, I try to live a peaceful, moral, and, uh, and just, uh, I try to live a good life, which is difficult if you're a black person because you're expected to constantly give it up to people who don't deserve it and haven't earned it. And the sad part is, is that very often, particularly in the West, you know, only one is allowed in. They'll bring one in. And if you decide to come in there, these black people who are physically black, but not culturally black, will guard their white people like a toothless dog with a bone. And if you will not get on board with what they're doing, you'll get you'll be gotten rid of real quick they they are hired to be diversity and not do diversity and that's the frustrating part where they continue to do that that same old fist jubilee thing where they're they're giving white people what they want at their own at their own at the cost of their own integrity their own cultural standing and for what a few dollars talking of integrity and um and value because i think in this entire conversation that we're having today Value is very important in it. Uh, it is about uh, our survival, our culture, our reference, our relevance in the world. And the way we do this is by establishing certain value and living by then. And of course, to do this, we are going to do it as, as a group because as an individual, it's going to be pretty difficult for you to do because what are you going to be referencing? Um, for how long have you been in existence? But if you can think back now to where you are coming from, to the people that are look like you, and the rest of it, then it becomes uh, very easy to be able to understand what is your code of conduct, what is your value, based on what are you going to be singing, looking at music, not in this sense. Anyway, where I actually am going from here is I try to understand your take on the, how we behave within uh, this society that is uh, controlled by people that, that doesn't look like us, but they also want us to participate in it. But how do we then define our own participation? Do we understand that we are part of a group also, or do we just go there to entertain other people without really caring about 
our core value, where we are coming from. I think all this is going to make sense now if we are looking at uh, the future, if we are looking at the kind of world we want to live for our children our, and our children's children. I think this one is very, very important. It's especially where a lot of black people now, they think of themselves in the Western sense as individuals instead of part of a community or a conduit. And, and it manifests in our music, like with hip hop, is designed by individuals to be experienced individually, as opposed to, say, jazz or a West African drum ensemble or a juju band, where everyone has a role and everyone is negotiating a process together as a culture to give to an audience that appreciates it and can give energy so that you don't want to stop playing because it's so much fun. We don't see a whole lot of that anymore. I get these people who are acting on an individual basis. They're doing what's good for them in the moment and not what's good for all of us going forward. And the book work that I'm doing now on George W. Walker, they were the, in, in doing this work and bringing it to the fore, I have learned that I can't just tell his story. I have to tell the story of the whole community that he was involved in because he died broke because any money that came in was going out to set up new companies, to, to help young artists, to, to put back into his company to make it bigger and stronger. And he had a very similar value system to me and it's interesting to see how he evolved because originally as a performer, he and his partner, Burt Williams, were, uh, they were a duo, a comedy duo kind of a thing. And trying to find a way to, to, to be black without having to adhere to white people's expectations. But there were so many white people pretending to be black with the corks on that they had to differentiate themselves and refer to themselves as the two real coons. So that white audiences would know these are real black people doing real black stuff and it's different from what these fake black folks are doing. So if you really want to see it, you got to come see us. And not only do you got to see us, you got to pay us. And an interesting thing for them was that because we had been so separated from Africa for so long, we had sort of, we were making it up as we were going along, right? Even though we still had vestiges of Africa within us and we knew that we had come from Africa, uh, he and his partner were hired to be part of the San Francisco World's Fair of 1894, where in keeping with the tradition that was started in Paris in the 1880s, they had human zoos, where they literally made enclosures and they brought people in from the Philippines, from Africa, from the Pacific Islands to exist in these little enclosures for white people to peer over you know, the fence or look through holes in the gate or pay admission to get in and see these savages, these examples of lesser humanity to sort of let the Western European people know that they were so much better because look at the example, look at by comparison, you know, look at how much better we are. And there, uh, there were some people from Dahomey who were displayed in Chicago in 1893 that were brought together, but that were brought there by a Belgian named Xavier Penne. And because they were so poorly treated, the, and because the weather was so cold and just getting, just having to deal with white Americans, these Africans were like, what is going on here? We're done with this, we're going home. So when they went home, 
Penne had to go back and get more for the for the next year in 1894 in San Francisco. That's where George Walker and Burt Williams were working in San Francisco. And because the Africans were late in arriving to the human zoo, they had to hire Afro-Americans to pretend to be Africans. And so they did. Because, you know, we're all the same, right? And white people really couldn't tell the difference. And so they did that going off of what they had been told Africa was. But then when the Africans arrived, it completely blew their mind. The cultural sovereignty that they had, the knowledge of the natural world, and their understanding of what was going on around them, the magnanimousness of them. It completely took them by surprise to where they figured we have to do something. We have to find a way to arrest, arrest the identity of what Africa is do something beautiful with it and make something that's so amazing that everybody's going to want to see it. So that was 1894. And in 1902, they debuted the play Indahome, which was the first black production on Broadway in the United States. And it was about going back to Africa and reclaiming heritage. It's not a solid story, and it's got a lot of problems, but they were making the best out of what they had. It was the very first time, the first black people to do anything. There's always some extra stuff that's like, mm, but you can't, you can't judge them. They had to do what they had to do just to get a foot in the door. Um, but because of their exposure to Africans, it gave them the wherewithal and the fortitude to do what they thought was right. And... Uh, and for me, that's a beautiful thing. And I had this, a similar experience when I moved to Los Angeles uh, playing juju music and palm wine music with Ghanaians and Nigerians to see how they carried themselves, how they knew their history, their pride, their ability to just shake things off when racism happened and things of that nature. And, other, and in other ways, too. They had not, some of them had not been used to it. And when something would happen, they didn't understand why. And it would kind of freak them out because it's something they weren't used to. I'd explain to them, oh, that's because, and I'd break it down. And they would just be like, wait a minute, what? And sadly, I got used to saying, sorry, man, welcome to America. I had to say it to a lot of Africans who just had not, it's been it's like, this is why we are the way that we are. But you'll find other people people like me who understand the difference and have the double consciousness and can move forward. A lot of us don't because it's a difficult road. But I really admired George Walker and Burt Williams and that whole community of people who saw the need and fought that fight knowing that they were going to be erased and forgotten because they thought that if they created a big enough, a big enough swath of cultural, artistic, and um, uh, artistic examples of beauty that their magnanimousness would outweigh the detriment of Jim Crow of racism. And unfortunately he died 11 years before his partner and his partner, like I said, with J uh, Jackie Robinson, his partner was actually the beta test for assimilation or what white people call integration where uh, when George, who handled all the business and did all the dealings and did all, he took all the hits from the white people, so they didn't like him. When he got sick and died, they basically plucked Bert, his partner, out of a black company, the most powerful company in the country, as far as black folks are concerned, 
you know, in 1909, when George took ill, their payroll was $3,000 a week. They fed more than 60 families. Uh, They pulled him out of that black company. Yeah, they pulled him out of that black company, which destroyed it. And they put him into the Ziegfeld Follies, which was a white show with white actors, white management, and only played to white audiences. So they took him away from black people. And they call that integration. And they effectively destroyed this black institution. And sad because they had two plays that involved Africa. Indahomey was the first one. The second one was Abyssinia, which was based on real information gathered from an, Af- from an Afro-American who had been to see King Melanick in Ethiopia and brokered the, 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 the treaty between the United States and, and Ethiopia in 1902 through Teddy Roosevelt. So that one is a beautiful story, and it's amazing because it became the basis for Bing Crosby and uh, Bob Hope movies that were popular into the 1960s. It's a beautiful play with amazing music. And George's father founded the uh, Colorado African Colonial Society, where he worked for the last, oh, 40 years of his life. No, let's say 20, 20 years of his life to repatriate black people to a 40,000 acre land grant that he negotiated with the president of Liberia. And of course, it's gone, like it's been erased. Like he's buried in an unmarked grave in Colorado. I found it a couple of years ago and no one knows. You know, this man died penniless. Uh, My guy, George Walker, his grave was left unmarked for almost 10 years. His wife, Ada Overton Walker, who was the greatest dancer in the country at the time of her death in 1914, is buried in Brooklyn Still, her grave is unmarked. Before we started the record, uh, we exchanged ideas on the concept of cultural sovereignty. So I want you to help people understand what that means. Cultural sovereignty for me is knowing who you are based off of where you come from and where you plan to go and whom you choose to give the best part of yourself to. So for me, that means acknowledging the beauty of the experiences of my forefathers, my ancestors, and the elders who I'm not related to, but shared their beauty with me while they were still living. Because now that they're gone, they're largely forgotten. And regardless of how remarkable they were when they were living and how well-respected they were, but as soon as they were not allow- around anymore to carry that mantle, to carry that weight, to carry that burden, they just got erased and replaced with someone or something or nothing at all who did- didn't have any merit. Um, so that, that sovereignty for me is control of our history, of our identity and our destiny, not so that we can exploit it for short-term monetary gain, but so that when we are looked back upon by our descendants, we are an example of what to be, what to do, or an example of admiration, an example of something to aspire to. And we cannot do that if we do not have cultural sovereignty, because if we are preoccupied with what white people think of what we say and do, then we will be just like Fisk, we'll be just like the early ragtime composers, we'll be like Barry Gordy, we'll be like everybody else 
who finds a way to find what they call a middle road, which is not a middle road because it's not equal, will be just like all those other people who are shown to be charlatans. And it is control of our destiny. It is control of our history. It is doing the painful, difficult, but necessary work to find out the truth or the truth as we see it based off of the information that we have and to act accordingly. Um, I remember uh, working with uh, a native man when I was uh, much, much younger when uh, he, had been, he had been robbed by some, by some black youths who, and I knew who it was and I was really felt really ashamed and really bad because he was a good fella and a good man and was trying to do the right thing. But they took his niceness as a weakness to be exploited for short term gain because they could only see right beyond their nose. And I was trying to find a way to apologize to him for it because he didn't deserve what happened. And he said, it's OK. This, the, in, and the, because I understand the difference between you and them, they act as though they have no ancestors. You, the way that you act is because you know your ancestors are watching. And because I know the story of my ancestors, I act accordingly because I know what they went through so that I could exist. And for these children to act the way that they did, it's because they don't have much knowledge of self and they for sure didn't have access to any of their cultural legacy. And it pained my heart to hear, but he was true. They acted as though they have no ancestors. And so for me, I, I want to inspire young people to dig into our history. Like with, with the work that I've done on this book, I have roughly 1,100 single space pages of newsprint of where these people were, what they did, their daily movements for almost 20 years, enough to make a period drama, like a real drama with multiple seasons, you know, because there's infighting. There's smallpox outbreak, there's uh, stabbings, there's a shooting, there's uh, various productions and all these fights with management. They go to England with Indahome and give the they give a command performance for uh, Prince Philip, who is the uncle of the current queen. Uh, you know, there's all this beautiful intrigue and, and conflict and peaks and valleys that are real. We don't have to make it up. Right. It's all in there. And I hope that this inspires younger people to go back in and fill some of the gaps that are in my research and to go research their own family histories, you know, because you can read the census reports back to 1870. And then before that, it's receipts and ship manifests for us in the United States and to some extent the Caribbean and in Central America. But that work is really painful and really difficult, particularly if you have light skinned ancestors. Because, you know, 99 time, 99,000 times out of 100,000, it was not consensual. And so that information was not shared orally, and it can be very difficult to ascertain and figure out, and it requires a lot of discipline and a lot of uh, fortitude. And I hope that the work that I have done and will continue to do will inspire younger people to pick up that mantle and go forward with it, because... I, I fear for the future when I see a lot of black children who get their February version of the black experience because they're getting it from the public school system and television, which is garbage because it benefits white people. Like, no, go find the real thing. 
if they're telling you if they're telling you six, it's really 12, 13 or 14. Go find out what it really is. They're only giving you a little tiny bit of it. They're giving you a stereotype. Right. And it's not that stereotypes are untrue. It's that they're incomplete. You need to find the complete history or as complete as you can make it. Or in the Antonio Gramsci sense, you need to go within history and find those in the infinity of trace information and make an inventory of it. And that's how you find out who you are, who your ancestors were, and who people are going to be going forward. And that's what cultural sovereignty is to me. Thank you so much for that, dear Daniel. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Uh, it sort of fall in line into uh, the entire conversation that we are having today, which has to do with value, with our culture, with our standing in the world, that we are not existing as individuals, we are existing as a group of people. This life is a, it's a game where everyone is invited to play. And we must play understanding that we are part of it. No one is exempted. So we must know our role. What am I supposed to do to make sure that this story continue? Because we must keep on moving. We cannot stop. Yes, it is challenging. It is difficult. There are a lot of obstacles out there in front of us. But we're not going to look for the easier way. We're going to look for the right way to make sure that we keep moving, to be able to have story, something that we can leave for the generation that is coming after us. And in doing so, you will encourage people to embrace the discomfort of the learning process because they know when they get on the other side, they'll be different, but they'll be so much more beautiful in ways that, in ways that you can't imagine until you get to the other side. But you have to take that risk. And I, it's, I really want to encourage them to do, young people to do it of all stripes by doing it, my, by showing them. The, the, look at what happened to me. I took on some PTSD doing my doctoral field work, but look at what I did. I made some lifelong bonds. My work is in the Smithsonian. Hundreds of thousands of people have seen my work. It was worth it. The harm that I took to do it, even though I never gained any financial gains from it or whatever, it's not about the out income. It's about the outcome. That's what I did this for. And I hope that I set a good example and that I continue to grow in that regard and that I inspire young people because nothing makes me happier than someone who comes and finds me and says, you know, you said something to me that inspired me to do this or that or the other. And I may not even remember that person or even remember saying it, but it was, it was nothing for me at the time, but it was everything for them. And so many people have done that for me to where I just try, every, I'm, I'm earnest about what I do. I take every opportunity because you don't get those moments back, particularly with children. And uh, I'm just hoping that, that that happens. I saw that happen for my uncle, who was a very important guy for a lot of young people who were like thrown away as kids. And uh, where they would we'd be out somewhere doing something and people would stop him and talk about how on such and such day, he did this for them and that inspired them to do this, that or the other. And then they were in a much better position. And that's something that, um, you know, and watching him tear up as a result of that, because he had to take those hits to make sure that he was doing the right thing the right way. That showed me that this is a man right here. And this is an example of what a man should be. And so I endeavor every day to be that kind of man, the way my uncles, the way my father is, the way my grandfather was. This is another important thing that actually I'm picking out from here, uh, from your statement, which is the... Apart from just the value, but also the role model, the ability to see other people like you 
and you will want to be like them. Uh, uh, this is very important too if we want our society to survive, if we want our species, our demography to survive in the story that is going to come after this. So, and of course, this requires also education, educating people on what are the key values in their society, in their history, in their culture that need to be preserved. And of course, they require a lot of resources now, I know. But like I said before, we need to do this, all of us, in our different capacity, with our different ability. We all need to participate in making sure that our culture, our identity, our way of life is alive. The HBCUs, the black universities, they were, they were broke, you know, because no one was giving them any money. No one wanted to educate black people after the Civil War, except for a few select philanthropists, many of whom who despised the institution of slavery but had no intention of treating black people as equal. Uh, so in order to take the reins for themselves, they organized these, these singing groups who went around the country and a couple went to England and they performed these songs, but they had to do it in an acceptable way to white people. And so that stuff has no integrity to it. So in order to, um, to make the most money, they had to give white people what they thought white people wanted, which was at our own detriment. The same with, um, uh, so they did that and they made lots of money, but that music has no integrity. And outside the HBCU systems, no one sings that music anymore because it's corny, it's silly. It has no, the stuff that people were singing on plantations was much better, much more culturally sovereign, much more real because they were truly in a position of no way trying to find a way, begging a merciful God to help them find a way, right? Uh, fast forward a few years into the 1890s when you get black composers who can make a living just writing a song down and selling it as sheet music, you know, to a ravenous public who had recently been, who had recently been exposed to uh, the ragtime piano tradition that black people had developed in uh, houses of ill repute in bars in places like New Orleans and in Chicago and such. But they had to make a sanitized version of it for white consumption. And so the very first one who was really successful with that was a man named Ernest Hogan, uh, who went by the, the moniker, the unbleached American. So in essence, he was showing he was black, right? Because he's unbleached. But his first real hit was called All Coons Look Alike to Me. And it has all the hallmarks of a minstrel song. And it was a huge hit among white people. And, you know, it earned like $200,000 in royalties, you know, within the first two years. It was composed and uh, sold in 1895, and it made him a very wealthy man. And so much so that it created like a kind of a gold rush of composers who were composing in this style to make money off of the fad of white people consuming these coon songs, black people and white people. So you would get black composers making these songs because it was better to do that than working on somebody's farm or digging ditches because you could record a piece, sell it, and make royalties off of it. So your piece, like something you did a year ago, could make money for you. You know what I mean? It was the first time that black people could really do that, make money off their own intellectual property. But it had to be done in a way that was acceptable to white people. And uh, so that process of finding a way 
to make a black cultural expression that was sellable and acceptable and also consumable because if white people who couldn't understand syncopation, where I have all these examples of where Williams and Walker are traveling and the orchestras refuse to play the music, saying that it's beneath them because it's jungle music or nigger music, they would call it. But really, rhythmically and harmonically, it was too complicated and they couldn't admit that they didn't know what to do, that this black sensibility was beyond their understanding, right? So if I don't understand it, there must be something wrong with it. Not that, oh, this thing that black people are doing is new. I better get on the ball with this. This is hip. You know, there were a few white people who did that, but the vast majority were like, no, it has to come to me. So they were dumbing it down. Just like with Fisk, they were dumbing down the black plantation musical experience. The earliest ragtime composers were dumbing it down to make it consumable to white people. So ragtime has lived by black people, the real piano professors who played in the bars and the houses of ill repute and whatnot, their experience and their ability to improvise in the moment and to just deal. Because if you didn't do the music right, like if the prostitute coming down the stairs who needs to shake herself a certain way to get money from these patrons, if she can't shake it right to make some money, you ain't gonna make no money. Or if you play something wrong in a bar and someone decides that they had bad luck in the crap game because they couldn't focus on the game because of what you were playing, you might get cut. So you have to play with integrity. You got to have the ability to live in the moment and to improvise and to deal with the impermanence of the situation to get the most out of it. You don't get that if you're reading it off a sheet of paper, particularly if it's been made easy for you. So you would get these white people who get this music, this black music that's written on a page, and it's exact. It has to be done exactly as it was on the page. And there's no improvising. There's no changing. There's no, this is how they do it in this city. This is how they do it in that city. This is how I do it. Or how a ragtime piece, if done properly, is not played the same way twice. Like, that's boring. Why would you do it that way? Only Europeans do that way. But then once it's written down on a page, it became static. And it ruined things going forward. It made it harder for really potent black people to be potent because if the vast majority of black music is cow is kowtowing and you come up with something that is real soulful and radical, they're going to try to destroy you because you're not doing it right. And going forward, that's how black innovators have been treated. John Coltrane was told that he played bad. Lester Young was told that he was a bad musician because he didn't sound like the black music that they that white people had heard before. Ahmad Jamal, who was the standard of creative excellence for piano trios, was told that he played bad because he didn't sound like Oscar Peterson, who the white people liked. Right? These are people who are John Coltrane is the pinnacle of black musical creativity and sovereignty, but he had a difficult time because he did not adhere to what white people thought the music would be. Um, there's a funny interview with one of the uh, one of the musicians from Third World. I can't remember his name off the top of my head. He's the light-skinned fella, play guitar. Uh, where someone asked him, you know, this is in Jamaica. They asked him, so uh, how are asked him about how you know difficulties that he's had as a musician in the music industry, and he says, playing straight out, you know, things didn't get difficult until white people got involved, because. These because third world style of reggae brought in jazz and brought in R&B and their music was really, really uh, 
it was real danceable. Like you could play it in the club and it wasn't, it was reggae, but still it had all these other examples, these other elements to it with the way they use harmony. They didn't use the same amount of space that you hear in reggae. It was really heavily orchestrated. And uh, so these white journalists who were using Bob Marley and the Whalers as their reference decided that's what real reggae is. And this other thing is different and therefore deficient because it's not something I recognize. And so for him to say, like, who are these people to decide with their pen what is and what is not real reggae? Because, you know, Ken Booth and Bob Marley, Stevie Wonder, all these people think it's real hip. They love our music. So who is this white person who has no cultural authority or knowledge? Who are they to say with their pen that what I do is not reggae? Like, like, I come out of the hood. I come out of the ghetto. What ghetto do you come out of where they make music? You know, and they don't have any frame of reference. So who are they to tell me this? And so those are the same people who told me that my sound was too traditional, right? And so for a lot of Africans, when they would come here, they would see how white people would behave with this audacity. And they, like, they were like, what is going on? It's like, that is welcome to America, man. They have their cake and they eat it too. That's how they roll, man. So it's either, what are we going to do about this? or you have to get gone because it's not going to change unless we do something to create a critical mass. Let's band together and make this happen. And, and so the, the commodification of it, because it has to be acceptable, means that the very top tier, the best stuff that makes it beautiful, the stuff that recognizes the pain of the struggle, you know, the beauty that comes out of the hate is completely ignored. By the same token, uh, music was broken up into categories at the very beginning of the record industry. The record industry was maybe 10, 15 years old when they did that, where they had uh, Western classical, which is the pinnacle. You had the, the hit parade, which is all the popular music, which is marches, classical bass sort of things and like sentimental love songs and whatnot. And even some minstrel stuff. Then you had race music, which was music that was made by black people that was designed to be sold to black people because no one wanted to deal with black music. And then there was also hillbilly music, which was music that was made by poor white people to be sold to poor white people that was so close to the music made by poor black people because of their proximity to each other that respectable white people didn't want anything to do with it. But in the 1940s, when white people start really consuming race music in droves, and they had been since the 20s, but when white people really start wanting to consume it even more, uh, it was given a new term. The word race music was dropped, and they changed the name to rhythm and blues. Same music, different name, just to make it acceptable to be purchased by white people. Then, when white people, it's not enough for white people just to consume the music, when they want to purchase the music and play the music, the name was changed to rock and roll. The same music, but played by white people, is rock and roll. You could take one tune by a black person, like say Shake, Rattle, and Roll by Big Joe Turner. That's R&B. But when, say, Pat Boone does it, a white guy, it's called rock and roll. And that has since become the term for white pop music, rock and roll. That's a white people's thing. But no one really knows the fact that the word rock and roll is a black vernacular term for sex. And most white people have no idea. If you rock and roll all night long, that means you with your honey, 
doing what you want to do and having a good time. And there's plenty of examples to show that, but with all with white people not listening to that music at all, it just gets thrown away and it's just gone. And, uh, and in that regard, because of the separation of things, only about a quarter of black music ever made it to the pop radio realm for white consu- consumption. So on, my, on the walls behind me, I have hundreds and hundreds of black recordings that are absolutely amazing that are largely unknown because they weren't part of that little bit that crossed over into white consciousness. And it's sad that these people have been forgotten, but I'm lucky that I have these original examples because as a kid, my mother would bring home Victrolas, you know, designed to play the 78 RPM records when I was a kid. She'd bring those home and I could tinker with them and fix them. And I just fell in love with the music that was played on them. And so that's how I started to learn to play music by myself was with these older recordings. So by the time I was able to gig, I sounded like a guy who had been dead for 30 years. And so all the older guys loved me. They thought it was cool and encouraged me. And the younger people just thought, like, why are you playing all that old stuff? Like, dude, this old stuff is way better than what we as a generation are doing. Like, you hit a button and the beat starts. It used to talk talking about bitches and hoes and stuff. Like, we in the old days, they would talk about those things, but they would hide it in double entendre where it would be clever, where you get a little giggle. Nowadays, they just go right in on it. And it's just like, man, we used to be a lot more subtle. You used to be a little more of a a trickster aspect of it to it. And so the commodification of the of black cultural expressions has 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 it has uh, served to handicap us. It cuts us off at the knee. We don't get to give our full the full breadth of our humanity. It's missing. And when white people would tell me that uh, my sound was too traditional, that was basically them saying, no, you're not giving it to us the right way. We acknowledge that those things exist and that they're real, but it's not, you know, we are the judge at the end of the day, and you should give us what we want. Otherwise, we're not going to hire you. You will not get paid. You won't get any money. You won't get any prestige. You won't get any work. And unfortunately, a lot of us black people will adhere to that. We'll do whatever white people have determined is the pinnacle and hit that. And the one who was picked by the white people to be the best, then everyone aspires to that pinnacle, whether it has any artistic or cultural merit or not. And that emptiness is uh, sickening to me because it's so much wasted opportunity. And I see so many super talented black people who are preoccupied with that. And in my estimation, they're wasting their talent. All right. Now, there's another important question I would like to ask there. Uh, now, this uh, artist, this musician that are producing this uh, music that are sort of uh, uh, appealing to the white people, how much are they actually patronized in the in the African American community? Are they sponsoring this project? Are they really are they willing to pay so that these artists can also advance in their career? Are they uh, spending their money to make sure that these artists are successful in their production? In the U.S., not anymore. Not not like we used to. Where uh, like even even when Thelonious Monk, Ahmad Jamal, John Coltrane were being basically derided in the press, black people came to see them in droves because they knew, they knew the, the beauty behind it and didn't care. Nowadays, the ones who get anointed, they're the ones who are the pinnacle and that's what particularly younger people will look to. And 
mostly because there are so few examples of black people who are willing to fight the good fight and maintain their integrity because it's difficult to maintain your integrity when there's so many detractors and so many other examples that are easier to consume, right? Uh, and, and there are plenty of black artists who will change the way that they do things for that acceptability to where you listen to their recordings or their writing or any of their, their, their offerings before fame, and there's a potency that is just that far outweighs what they do now. Uh, and it's a real shame because I know a lot of jazz musicians who were just phoning it in, literally, and you know, and and they're not giving their best part of themselves. They're not giving their best effort because they don't have to, or because they're so stretched thin that they don't have time to go in the shed and practice and to really find their artistic voice the way that they used to. They just don't have the energy to do it anymore because they're caught on that hamster wheel. So it's it's out there, but there are very few, and those of us who choose to do it that way suffer. I know quite a few really talented black musicians who are living in abject poverty because they choose to exist with integrity for better or for worse. You know, there are a few who are doing the do, but they really shouldn't suffer the way that they have. And if we were closer the way that we had been before assimilation, this probably wouldn't be an issue because there would be enough black people who appreciate them to to give them the sort of environment that they need to thrive, where it's not you don't need a whole bunch of money or a whole bunch of accolades. You just need a little bit of space to have what you have and do what you do, you know, to 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 have to struggle from out through, you know, because of outside forces to be your best is more realistically, it's hard to convince a child, it's difficult to convince a child to take that more difficult route. And, uh, and I struggle with that myself, but at the end of the day, life is fleeting and you want to make sure that when you clock out that what people say about you is true and accurate and you can only do that by maintaining what you say and do during your life. Because if you live in a compartmentalized way, it comes out, particularly if you're not around anymore to protect that image. If your image is that weak or that fleeting or that fake, right? That won't, if you're not alive to maintain it, it's gone. So it's a, it's, a difficult, uh, it's a difficult position to be in, but at the same time, I try to be the same kind of elder that I had to give the information to younger people so that they can make their own choices. And I hope that they see enough beauty in the way that I and others like me have chosen to go that they will take those hits in order to do the right thing. Okay, so as an expert uh, in, in music, um, because we are talking of the kind of music that should represent the people, looking at our culture, our value system, uh, who would you say are your best type of musician? Who would you say better represented are the people that you know of? This could be maybe when you were much younger or even now, why not? So please go ahead and, and share that with us. Okay, uh, as far as like people who were like... Uh like famous or on the scene or well-known. Um, Stevie Wonder, of course. Uh, Songs in the Key of Life came out when I was two, and I heard it daily, you know, as a child. It was such an amazing record. Uh, Duke Ellington, John Coltrane, um, Ahmad Jamal, Bob Marley, um, Fela Kuti, 
and a whole host of jazz musicians who were long dead before I came along, you know, Coleman Hawkins and uh, James P. Johnson, you know, people who existed with charisma and some bump and some thump. Uh, Earth, Wind & Fire, of course, because they came the closest to recognizing the totality of the black musical experience in their music. They, they went, they started with jazz. They didn't go all the way back into ragtime, but they had blues, they had funk, they had jazz, they had gospel, they had the whole thing. And then whatever the, the vestiges from Africa they, they had picked up, you know, playing, playing biras, uh, various hand drums, using polyrhythm and those sorts of things, cowbells and such. That was a huge eye-opener for me. And uh, as far as playing goes, because I was a saxophonist, uh, Sonny Stitt, Cannonball Adderley, uh, Johnny Hodges, Tab Smith, Charlie Parker, Stanley Turrentine, beautiful players, just really fluid. Like you could hear the, the way that they played the saxophone was almost like they were speaking their language. Like it was like spoken, you know, like they, like, like they could rhyme or something, you know. Uh, that stuff was very important to me. But again, I learned a lot of what I know from 70 RPM recordings from the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s. You know, really old music, even by the standards of the 80s when I was a kid, you know. And so that was the stuff I really looked up to. And on top of that, there was a group that was around when I was a kid called Fishbone out of Los Angeles. And they personified a lot of what I came to be where they were, they were a bunch of weirdos where they had ska, rocksteady, reggae, punk, funk, metal, gospel. Everything was in their music and all just mixed together because it all came from the same black root. And so they just mixed and matched it regardless of genre, which freaked people out in the industry. And of course, people who were used to consuming black music, which was either R&B or hip hop or gospel, were like, no, no, we're all those things. And for you to separate us up into these genres does a disservice to both us and you because it, it, it denies the totality of our human expression. And it, and it limits your ability to accept us for who we are. And I love the way George Clinton from Funkadelic, another absolutely influential individual because he was such a weirdo and so clever the way he used technology was brilliant the way he described them was the reason why they struggled the way that they do to this day is that they were they were too black for white people and too white for black people because black people become so compartmentalized where if you don't talk about bitches and hoes and blah 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 and fit into this little box that is acceptable this white made pinnacle we don't like you we don't want anything to do with you the same thing happened to Jimi Hendrix, where he made the Band of Gypsies recordings because he was getting pressure from the Black Panthers for not making black music, even though the way that he wanted to play was not acceptable to a lot of black people. So they wanted to force him into a box, even though it's like, why would I want to be in that box? Let me express myself. White people do this to us all the time. Why would we do it to ourselves? Which is really frustrating for him. And it's been frustrating for me my whole life. And for cats like Fishbone or even like Bad Brains, another group out of D.C., they would mix reggae with speed metal and punk. Real potent stuff. And sing about the struggles of what it means to be a black person in the United States where their music to me, like, uh, say, like, if you take uh, Fishbone's Rockstar, talking about racism in the music industry, and it's a speed metal tune, 
that's mixed with some ska, that is just as potent as NWA's Fuck the Police. Except the Fishbone piece is based off of all of their lived experiences within the music industry. Fuck the Police is something that's made up, right? Where they put the police on trial and stuff and, and all that sort of thing. And that's just a made up thing that they created in the studio. But Fishbone is just as valid because it talks about a real black experience but then they're not acceptable because they're not talking about bitches and hoes and such, which is really frustrating to me because we're just wasting our potential. And these guys are amazing. And they're still out there struggling. You know, like you could walk up to them on the street. These are guys who should be wealthy beyond their wildest dreams and doing whatever they want, but they still have to tour. They still have to, you know, do all this thing, all that, all these things about uh, like they get, they got to live life on the road, which is hard. Like that's that's a young man's game, and these guys are in their fifties, approaching sixty. You can't do it after that long, man. Especially because they don't make a whole lot of money, so they're struggling, you know. And it's it's a shame to see these black elders struggle the way that they do because they really should occupy a real point of reverence, but they're still unknown. Yeah, a struggle, and this is uh, perhaps part of the the broken system that we are talking about because they are not supposed to. After they have made the contribution that they made to the society, they're supposed to be taken care of. If we understand the value, if we know uh, what is the importance of, of us being a people. And because you are born as a child, then you grow up, then you become old, then you die, then other people uh, continue from where, you, from where you stop. It's a cycle. It continuously goes on and on and on and on. And the thing that actually makes this cycle to stay and function as a cycle is a value. So we must all understand that we are all called upon to participate, making sure that our value system is valuable and we value it to remain valuable. I really salute the courage of those different individuals like you who are making effort, making sure that this system holds that we do not forget where we are coming from. This is a noble job. It is not simple. It is not uh, something to do one day suddenly. It is a lifetime job. And people need to be appreciated for what they have done, for their contribution to our collective existence. We need to take the time to seize every opportunity to teach, to share, and to give thanks and show value. That's all that it really takes. Like I said before, like uh, people have come to thank me for something that I said or I did for them that I don't even remember just because I try to make myself available in every moment possible that I can to be a good elder, to be helpful, to be useful, to be kind because I have no idea what that's going to turn into. But also, I don't want to put that in negative energy out in the world because it's just not necessary just because I can, you know, uh, I think that we need to seize every opportunity we can to, to, to show love and the value of love to young people. And I take, uh, something that Alice Coltrane, uh, John Coltrane's widow, where she said that usually when he learned something, it was obsolete the very next day and he was giving it away to everyone else. And that's how I like to see it. As soon as I learn something and it's beautiful, I'm like, oh, every time someone comes over the house, I just learned this new thing, check this out, and I'll show it to them if I think that they will have the capacity to get it. 
And, you know, a lot of times, like say with my best friend, uh, he's a really good musician, one of the best that I've ever known and struggles mightily. We ended up putting together a thing called the Angola Project based off of my research at the prison where we made a chamber music ensemble based off of the recordings that were made in the 30s, 40s, 50s, some of my stuff as well. And he made the second trip with me after uh, he left after he left Lauren Hill's band. And it took me four years to get him to listen to the old recordings from the 40s and 50s to see the value. Because I'd say, hey, I got this really amazing music from this prison plantation. You should listen to it. I go, what are they, what are they singing about, man? Take a showers, whatever. You always make a joke and dash on. Like, no, man, it's the real thing. And so finally he came to visit me. Uh, and so I, had it, I picked him up from the airport. And we're in the car. I said, okay, man, now you can't squirm away from this. You trapped in my car. Here it is. And I put the CD in, and he was like, oh, man, we got to do something. I was like, that's what I've been telling you for four years, you knucklehead. Let's get to work. And we made two recordings based off of that. And it just took patience and fortitude, knowing, like, you could really use this, man. Use it. And, and of course, also, when that happens, you have to be okay with the fact that you will put this energy out there or you'll put these assets out there for people to use, and you get burned because they don't see the value or they're afraid to embrace the discomfort or intellectually they don't want to try because they don't want to risk failure or laziness or whatever, whatever it may be. You have to be willing to put that out there and to not have it reciprocate. And it can't be about that. You got to just put it out there. And if they take it, excellent. And if they don't, eh, you learn from it and you find a way to move on to the next one. But not taking it personal when I give something like that to people and they don't value it, that's something that I have always struggled with. Or if they take your niceness for weakness and then they try to exploit it as though you can't see how raggedy they are from the start. Like you raggedy, that's why I gave this to you, but I see potential you for not to be raggedy. Don't come at me with no raggedy hustle, man. Take this and grow with it. Because once I give something like that to them, they will ingest it and when they give it back to me based off of their understanding or how they express whatever this thing is, I can learn from it because they got a different take on it. And it's the same old stuff from back in the day. Like Sonny Rollins used to say, it's just scrambled eggs. Everybody scrambles them different. So I'd like to see how you do it. Like here are these components, put this together and see what you come up with. Because I could learn something in the end. And uh, that's what we need to, to value that experience, to not take it personal when it gets squandered, and to not judge people based off of first impressions. Because sometimes people will make a bad first impression when they don't really know any better. But when you do know better, you do better. So you got to take a few hits sometimes to get people to come around because I see so much wasted potential, particularly with young men. And... Uh, it's just a waste, and I, it just hurts my heart to see that sort of thing. And so I would rather go the route that I am going than pretend like I don't see the abject poverty of mind and spirit that I'm surrounded by. And I just try to ally myself with as many people as possible who think in a way and that way and be useful to them. And we help each other out, protect each other, and I see beauty and value in all of them, in everyone, until they show me otherwise, and then I can just back off of that and then go on to the next one. But I will, I will give until it hurts. Unfortunately, <laughs> that's uh, 
it's uh it's bit me before but i'm still willing to get up and do it again after some convalescence because i see the value in it and if people hadn't done that for me when i was younger i don't know where i'd be now where my brothers would be now all right thank you so much for that i really appreciate it i appreciate the work that you are doing now, how can people reach out to you, those who want to maybe work with you, collaborate with you? Uh, why not? Because this world, no one, no one does it alone. We are a community. We are a people. We are living together. Okay, well, I have a LinkedIn page. Other than that, I'm not on social media. Uh, doing the kind of work that I've done and just dealing with the, That's just one thing where I can, because the anonymity of it, people can just be cruel and mean, and they would just rather go that route. So I just stay away from those sorts of things and just continue to do my work. But they can find me on LinkedIn, and uh, that would be the best way because that's just me up there, and then we can directly. But any, any of the information that I have, my writings, my recordings, uh, points of view, I'm glad to help. Anyone can contact me. This kind of information, I don't expect to get paid for it. I will give it away to my own detriment because I do, you know, money is necessary to live. But at the same time, what I have, I, who, who would I be if I were to study the history of the commodification of black musical experiences and then attach a dollar value to it myself. You know what I mean? Like I did my work at a slave plantation. Why would I charge money for that sort of thing? Like, no, you can have it. Let's stop this. Let's get rid of this. So they can find me on LinkedIn and uh, I'm, I'm here to help and I would very much love to do so. So I appreciate anybody who reaches out and wants to work with me or wants to read my writings, or wants to give me some tips, some information that I don't have that can make me better as a person. Yeah, thank you so much for that. I appreciate that. Now, uh, what would be your final thoughts in the conversation that we have had today that's been about value? I want you to conclude it in your own way. We have to stop giving it up to people who don't deserve to have it. They either accept us as we are, our beauty and ugly, or they don't get it at all. And uh, like say with my, my book research, this is so groundbreaking with so many new things to history with regard to the first black people in the United States who were born after the Civil War and were working as artists that I've, been, I've kept it secret. Like it's very few people have seen it because I know what the tendency is, is that they will want it destroyed or dumbed down for consumption. And I won't give them the opportunity to do that. And so what we need to do is to value our experiences and value our cultural products and value our children enough to not give them away to these people. And if we can do that in a large enough mass, we can sort of force the issue. It's either, it's either we find a way to put it underground and wait for those people who think that way to die off because they are disappearing because we see the acts of desperation that they're performing to hold on to something that they have but did not earn. We either have to wait for them to die off and work diligently to convince their children you know, ma'am, if I give up my seat, that child will not know an injustice is being done. If we don't wait for them to go, educate their children to act accordingly and value our children enough to continue the struggle, it's just not going to happen. But we need to keep these things separate until that happens. And we need to stop just as soon as we figure out something that's sellable, we have to stop running to white people to give it away. And that's the most difficult thing to do, particularly because so many black people are in a des desperate situation or have come out of a desperate situation and cannot lose that crabs in a barrel mentality. We all struggle with it. And uh, it's so much easier to make short-term gains in that regard, but we have to value ourselves enough to take those hits to 
to do the right thing going forward. Because I see so many black people who were down for the struggle, but then they get a little money, they get a little prestige. I mean, look how crazy James Brown was at the end. And Michael Jackson, like the things that these people were doing or how Prince, like he kept everything hidden for a very good reason. And now that he's dead, his siblings and management are fighting over him like his corpse, like he's some kind of a, like he's the last pork chop on the plate or something. And they just split his estate up into two. And you see how now they got fashion, Prince Fashion coming out and releasing all these recordings that he had hidden that he didn't want released because this is what happens. If you ally yourselves with people who don't think holistically and are looking for dollar signs, we need to get rid of that mentality and to stop basing our cultural value systems based off of how much you can sell whatever it is that you're doing to white people and start valuing it for what it is. Oh, my grandchildren would love this. I'd rather buy some acreage where we can grow our own food than buy a, an Escalade with spinning rims. You know what I mean? And it's up to us. We can do it. Our capacity is there. We've done it in the past. There are, there are beautiful examples of us out there doing it. What we need to do is make ourselves available to those people, take those skills, grow them, and then give them away. And continue to do that until we have until we match our talk with our walk. And that's that's important to me, but it's gonna take time. But just like the ancestors, like George Walker and all of them, like my grandparents, they were looking to a brighter day. They did so much work because they wanted life to be better for me. And I do what I do so that my life will be better for people going down the road, even though I don't even have any children. I want black people to understand how beautiful we really are. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure you subscribe so you never miss any of our future episodes. Rate our review Obehead podcast and share with your friends who might need it. I remain Obehead Ewafo. Thank you so much for listening. I'll talk to you in the next episode.